The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, um, so tonight we are uh, continuing our study in Romans, and this, I believe, is our last Wednesday night Bible study of the calendar year. So uh, next couple of weeks uh, we'll be off into the first week of, um, of January as well. So it'll be a few, few weeks, um, but uh, I'm excited to go through some Romans tonight. So let's uh, open in prayer and we'll begin our study. Father, thank you for this evening. I thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here tonight to study your word. Um, I thank you for each of these that we just voted on and for their heart of service to the church. Pray that you'd bless them in their roles uh, that they're playing. And be with us now, Lord, as we study uh, in Romans chapter 6. What an incredibly significant chapter. And help me to be faithful in my teaching and all of us as we meditate together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are moving into a new section in Romans. Um, and uh, again, uh, those sections and seams and transitions, those are things you see by studying the, the words. There were no original chapter or verse uh, divisions at all that was put in later, and we find it helpful. Um, but uh, Paul just rolls on from, uh, from one topic to the next. But this is a significant uh, new phase of uh, Romans. And up to this point, uh, we have been talking about the need for salvation, the universality of sin, uh, effectively Romans 1 to 3. And then toward the end of Romans 3, the gospel message itself of Christ, the Savior of the world, the propitiation from uh, the wrath of God by His blood, uh, the wrath of God turned away, and the concept then of an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that comes by faith, not by works, given to those who believe in Jesus, who trust in his blood. That's the glowing center of the gospel, Romans 3, 21 to 26. And then uh, justification by faith alone, unfolded and explained and, and exemplified in uh, Romans 3, then all through chapter 4 as well. And then the beautiful uh, statements of of the gifts that we have, uh, the assurance we have of salvation, having been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings because God uses suffering in our lives to build character, and character gives us hope. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts and God's love is poured out into our hearts by the Spirit whom He has given all of these beautiful treasures of salvation. And then the logic of uh, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. How much more now that we are reconciled, adopted children, will we be saved from God's wrath through Him? him Romans 5, 1 through 11. And then uh, last number of weeks, we've been going through the doctrine of original sin, Romans 5, 12 through uh, 21. And just the uh, compares, compare and contrast between Adam and Christ. Now we're moving to a new section. Romans 6 through 8 are the key chapters in the Bible on the topic of sanctification. Uh, sanctification, and that is the next phase of our salvation after justification. Sanctification is the progressive growth of individual Christians uh, in conformity to Christ, that little by little, 
we would think more like Christ, act more like Christ, that we would actually uh, be more and more holy, progressively holy. And that's Romans 6 teaches that very, very plainly. Romans 7 makes it plain how difficult it's going to be. Indwelling sin is powerful, uh, very powerful, so much so that Paul, the author of the letter, says, the very thing I hate, I do, and the good things that I want to do, I do not do. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. So Romans 7 tells us how difficult sanctification really is. Very, very difficult. Then Romans 8 transitions into the power of the Holy Spirit within us to do this sanctification work. The, the Holy Spirit is in us, and by the Spirit we are enabled to live, live a different kind of life. And by the Spirit we're able uh, to put to death the misdeeds of the body. By the Spirit of life we are able to fulfill the law of God. All of that. The Spirit uh, is the consummation of sanctification. But then also we get glorification there as well, the final stage of, of our salvation in Romans 8. So that's where we're going. Romans 6, 7, and 8 are the key chapters on sanctification. All right. So I'd love uh, somebody to read Romans 6, 1 through 14, if you would. I've given it to you in your handout there, or you can read it from your own device or book, Bible. What shall we say then? Shall we now sitting so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as, though, as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin, cannot, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Thank you, Jim. That's uh, just amazing, um, all of the truth there is in these 14 verses, and just going to be, a, I hope, a, an incredible study as we walk through it. So let me ask some questions. And you're probably not helped by the fact that, you know, I just have the handout here and you don't have Romans 5. So you might want to look at your own copy of the Scripture to begin answering some of these questions, because there is a definite connection between what Paul said in Romans 5.20 and on into this topic here. So we'll want to walk through that. But let me ask some main questions. Why do some people believe that the doctrine of justification by faith, apart from works of the law, means that we can sin as much as we want with no worries at all? Why do some people think that? Justification by faith apart from works means you can do whatever you want, live however you want. Why, why do you think people think that? They're probably looking at the human tendency that when there are no 
put through whatever we want. It's just natural for us to want to do those things as much as possible. You tell someone there's no consequence for your sin, right. they think you're just going to go and do whatever you want because, hey, what's it matter? Yeah. Do we believe that at the moment of genuine faith in Christ that all of that person's sins, past, present, and future, are completely forgiven? Yes. Well, what is the, how does the future part kind of play into the question I'm asking here? All of your future sins are forgiven. What do you think, Alan? How would that might seem like be a license to sin? It's like the guy that paid the church for a future sin and then later on robbed that same church. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was an indulgence story. This is true. During, the te during Tetzel's indulgences, uh, indulgences were basically plenary forgiveness offered by the Pope. It was a piece of paper with a Pope seal. And this Dominican friar, Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, was going around preaching their version of hellfire and brimstone sermons, but based on the doctrine, the false doctrine of purgatory. So you got a grandmother, a father, an aunt, a beloved, whatever spouse, screaming in the fires of purgatory. And all you had to do was give a coin. You know, the moment the coin into the coffer uh, rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And so this guy's pretty effective, and he's out there. So at one, at one point, some hooligans go up to him and say, can you buy an indulgence for a sin not yet committed? He said, yeah, but it's going to cost you. It's going to be expensive. All right, so the whole thing's a fundraising drive for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So, yeah, it's like, well, what's the sin? Highway robbery. It's like, all right, it's going to be three gold pieces or whatever. So they paid it. And then they waited for him after he was done fleecing the town and then took the treasure box and, like Robin Hood, distributed it back to the people. <laughs> it's just a great story. And uh, they were arrested because they did it in the open. They were fearless. And they were arrested, brought before the judge, and they produced the uh, indulgence with the Pope seal saying, God Almighty has forgiven us. And the judge is like, my hands are tied. What can I do? I mean, I'm not going to find them guilty. So that was rather clever. But the humor aside, if all of your sins, past, present, and future are completely forgiven, it's not actually all that hard to imagine that that could just be a license to sin, right? How does Romans 6 begin to help answer that question? That justification by faith alone does not mean a license to sin. Regeneration. I'm sorry, right, so go ahead. Union with Union with Christ. We're going to talk about that, especially verse four, verses Roman. Regeneration. That when you're okay. uh, forgiven of your sins, not only are they saved and forgiven, not only are they uh, justified before God, but they're actually regenerated and receive a new heart that wants to obey God. Yeah. And we turn it around. If that new heart isn't isn't there, then the justification hasn't happened. So we're going to find that there's a strong link between justification and sanctification such that we can say, if there is no sanctification, there hasn't been any justification. So they are very strongly related. All right, we can, we'll unfold all of these. These are just main questions that I ask over these 14 verses, and we'll go verse by verse. Um, what does this section teach us about our relationship with Christ in His death and resurrection? Someone just mentioned it a moment ago, but what does this teach us about our relationship with Christ? I'll read the verses that would help you answer it. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So what do those verses tell about our connection with Christ and death and life? Resurrection. We die to self in this life and are raised again, born again, to newness of life. Okay. Adam, was it you that said spiritual union? Tell me more about that, because that's the word I would use, union with Christ. So, Just as Christ was raised from the dead, mm-hmm. he was crucified and raised from the dead, we would put our trust in him, our faith in him. Mm-hmm. Our old selves are crucified with him mm-hmm. and united with him in that newness of life that we are now called to, to walk in. Yeah, this is a foundational and a vital doctrine very deep, that, that at the moment of justification and regeneration, we are spiritually united with Christ. We become one with Him. And it's so strong that Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's spiritual union language. So really then what you can do is when you see the, the abuse of Jesus in his trials, right? And it's terrible. And then you see his actual death, his crucifixion, and it's terrible. How should you see yourself related to that? With that language of I, I have been crucified with Christ. How should you connect with the abuse and the, and the mocking and the spitting and the beating and the flogging and the condemnation by Pontius Pilate and then the crucifixion, the agony, the, all of that. How should you relate to that? I think by realizing that it's our sin that caused that to happen. Okay. I don't want to crucify him again, Pastor. Crucify him again. That's language from the book of Hebrews. Tell me more about that. I mean, every time I, every time I forget that sacrifice... I don't, I don't live in a way that's honoring and pleasing of that. Mm-hmm. Putting him through that again, right? Yeah. It's just, it's just insulting. Yeah, I mean, if you were being tempted to sin, and uh, then you, then you gave into the temptation, and then Jesus appears and says, "I'll pay for that," and you watch him walk up the hill, and carrying the cross, and watch him get nailed for that sin, has an impact, doesn't it? So would it be right to say that whatever he endured, both physically and spiritually, you deserved? You deserved. It's like, I'm not sure I would go that far. You should. You should go that far. He didn't deserve it. Then why did it happen to him? He was your substitute. So by standing in your place, that's basically God's way of saying that's what we all, we sinners, deserved. We deserved that treatment and worse. So that's, that's the idea, and I say at worst physically, the, uh, the perfect uh, atonement is in the spiritual realm as he drank a cup of wrath and, and from the justice of God. So that's, that's how we should see it. Spiritual union is very, very important, and we'll talk more about it. Number three, what are the implications of our spiritual union with Christ in the way we live our daily lives? Would you say there's like three or four implications of spiritual union with Christ in the way we live our daily lives? 
I mean, what are the implications? What would be some implications of the fact that we are one with Christ spiritually if we're genuinely Christians? We are not our own, we're bought at a price. Wow. So what, how would that affect us? If we're not our own, bought at a price, how would that affect how we live? I'm trying to think of everything that you're doing through the eyes of how I am as a believer and how I can honor God. Very good. Anyone else? What are the implications of our spiritual union with Christ and the way we live our daily lives. We're not able not to sin. Yeah. Like we're actually able to, because of our union with Christ through the Spirit, able to bear fruit yeah. as people who are alive. Yeah, one of, the, one of the biggest insights I got from this chapter is a realization, rock-solid realization, I don't ever need to sin again for the rest of my life. Now, I'm not thereby teaching Wesleyan perfectionism, but what I am saying is, I can say no, and should say no, must say no, to every temptation that comes to me for the rest of my life. That's pretty significant, isn't it? There is no temptation that will come to you that you cannot say no to. Now, what if you yield to the temptation? <laughs> how would the fact that you didn't need to and shouldn't have, how would that help you? You couldn't say to God rightly, there was nothing I could do. You know that one was too hard. You know, I had to give in to that temptation. You're supposed to consider yourself dead to every sin, right? So how would that affect you, let's say, post-sin? As a Christian, you've sinned. Let's say you've argued, complained, coveted, whatever, and the Holy Spirit's convicted you. And then from Romans 6, you remember, you didn't need to sin. There was no compulsion. You didn't need to. You were free. You could have said no to that temptation. How does that help you? How do I rightly repent enough and it, and it count? When okay. Do I stop repenting? So when do I stop repenting? Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is it worth the sin? Is it going to cover? Is, am I justified in turning, you know, turning away from the sin? Okay. It produces a, a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. Yeah. We know that it's not something that we have to do, and therefore that it both displeases God and is inconsistent yeah. with what we've professed. Completely forgiven and completely responsible. Think of it that way. That's bashing my assurance. <laughs> yeah, you're, you definitely, when we sin, we're hurting our assurance. But, I mean, I would say that's what you want to do. Completely forgiven and completely responsible for all your sin. It's not anyone else's fault. It's not the devil's fault. It's not circumstances. You don't ever need to sin again. But going forward, it's like, all right, what that means is whatever bad habits there are in my life, I can, I can grow up out of them, right? I don't have to be that kind of person 10 years from now. All right? I can grow. And that's, that's the power of this concept. All right? We'll get into it more as we keep walking. How, is, how does the concept that we died for sin once for all help us in our constant battle with sin. We died to sin. That's what we're told here. How does that help us in our battle? There is a definitive uh, victory. There is a definitive freedom that we objectively have. Yeah. Yeah, this is a decisive moment. We are not commanded to die to sin. We're not in the process of dying to sin. You, if you're a Christian, you have died to sin once for all. That's what, this, that's what Romans is teaching here. It's not a process. 
There are other things. There is process language in Romans 6. But the death to sin is not. You have been crucified with Christ. All right? We need to understand. I think we're just not used to crucifixion. Like if you, if you lived back then and you found out that, that your zealot neighbor had been captured and had been crucified, would you then ask, well, how's he doing? What would you say? What would you think would be his condition at that particular moment if he had been crucified? He's dead. <laughs> so that's what this text is saying. You have been crucified. You are dead to sin. It's not a process. Not, you're, not, you're not growing in... It's not like Jesus halfway through when he's been up there a little while. You have decisively died to sin. That's what this Romans 6 is teaching. Or you're not a Christian. Those are the options. So it's very powerful. How does that help us in our battle with sin to know you died to sin forever? Verse 11 might help you a little bit. <laughs> Verse 11. Is there anything there that might help you in your battle with sin? What does it say? What does verse 11 say? In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. All right. So that, by the way, is a very significant verse. All right. In a lot of, a lot of ways. It is significant because it is the first command in the book of Romans. It's the first command. It's the first imperative. Are you telling me, Pastor, that in five and a third chapters, there's not been a single imperative? That's exactly what I'm telling you. There are no commands in Romans 1. There are no commands in Romans 2 or 3 or 4 or 5. None. Just a bunch of theology, a bunch of theologically true assertions. The first command you get in Romans is in verse 11. And what is it? What do you, what's the first thing Paul, the apostle, has commanded his Roman Christian friends to do? Count yourself dead. Mark, what does that mean? Count yourself. Think of yourself as dead to that, that sin. It's kind of an odd first commandment, uh, you know, in, in Romans. Like, you should think of yourself a certain way. Consider yourself a certain way. Reckon yourself a certain way. It's the first commandment. There it is. Think of yourself this way. And when you do, what does that mean about the sin that you just committed? Because the next part of it is you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And sanctification always has a negative and a positive side. There's stuff you must not do, and there are things you must do, things you should do. And so both sides are in this one verse. But that's the first one. By the way, it's not the last command. The next verse has another one, and then there's more. They start coming like a river after that. But 611 is the first one. Very, very interesting. And so we're going to talk about this, this reckoning or considering. The fact is you are, if you're a Christian, you are dead to sin. It's not like you're trying to make up a fantasy here. No, you are to think of yourself the way you actually are. How you think, though, matters. If you think you're not dead to sin yet, it's going to affect how you live. But if you consider yourself dead to sin, then it's going to affect how you live in, in a different way. So we'll walk through all this. Very good. Um, how should we count ourselves dead to sin but alive? We kind of just covered that. Um, but we'll talk a lot more about it. Um, reckoning or considering. And then next, what does it mean to offer the parts of our body to sin? What does that mean to offer? And by contrast, what does it mean to offer the parts of your body to God? 
because we because we're no longer dead in sin, we are alive. We now actually are not forced to sin, but we have a choice we can make to either choose to sin or choose to live under God. Okay. So what are the parts of our body? What does that mean, the parts or members? Some of the translations say members. What, what does that mean, to offer the members of your body to God, not to sin? Let's, let's take a very, uh, very clear example that's described in detail in the book of James. Your mouth or tongue. How could you present your mouth to God versus presenting your mouth to sin? <laughs> All right, be slow to speak. James gives that good advice. All right, you know. Any other thoughts on presenting your, well, James says tongue, so let's stick with tongue. Presenting your tongue to God as opposed to sin. Okay, tell me more. That's a great verse. If, you're, if, you're, if what's in your heart inputs, constantly pursuing sin, then that's what you're going to be talking about all the time. Yeah. If you're seeking after God, then that's what you're going to be talking about all the time. Yeah. Now this idea of offer or present is a very important idea. And we're, going to, we're going to walk through it. It's very, very important. But it's basically like a soldier coming to a commanding officer, I'm yours to command. I'm ready, ready to do your will. I'm ready to do your bidding. And so the question is, are you presenting yourself to God and the members of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, or are you presenting yourself to sin as a master, as a tyrant, and your members to him as instruments of wickedness? That's the issue here. And by the way, this is exactly the same teaching that's in its more famous version in Romans 12, which says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as what? living sacrifice. It's, that's just a recap. The real teaching happened first here in chapter 6. All right, That's more famous. The living sacrifice thing is more famous, but it's the idea of everything I am, everything I have is yours, God, to, to use. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. So, all right, good. Those are just main questions. Let's go verse by verse now. The misunderstanding addressed and union with Christ means death to sin. What misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification by faith does Paul seek to address here? In other words, how does Romans 6.1 relate to especially Romans 5.20? So if somebody could read Romans 5.20, I would, I would go specifically to that verse. We talked about this last week. It's a very, very wonderful verse. Someone read Romans 5.20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Keep going. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. All right, so verse 20 has this beautiful statement where sin, one translation, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. All right? That's a beautiful verse, right? Fantastic. But it could lead to a misunderstanding. What misunderstanding could it lead to? More sin, more grace. It's the open thing Paul says here. What? All right. Should we go on sinning so there could be lots and lots of grace? That's the misunderstanding. That, you know, our sin puts God on display, right? So, you know, by my sin, I can make God look really forgiving and patient and loving and all that. So that's the whole thing. It's like something good can come out of our sin. So let's sin all the more. By the way, do you understand how impossible this line of reasoning would be 
if it were a works gospel or a Pelagian free will kind of thing where you have to earn your salvation by your moral actions. That's the normal so-called gospel of every other religion in the world. Only Christianity has to answer this one because Christianity teaches full forgiveness apart from our works as a simple gift of grace. And that's unique to Christianity. It'd be, can you imagine a works-based religion where it's like, well, shall I go on sinning? So that would make no sense. The essence of the salvation is righteous, moralistic actions, whereby you try to out, out, outdo your, your bad with your good and, and outweigh your bad with your good and all that. This question would be illogical. But in the context of justification by grace through faith apart from works, this makes perfect sense. So it shows we're on the right track in understanding full forgiveness has nothing to do with our works, has nothing to do with our actions, our law-keeping, or any of that. But, please don't misunderstand, we're not going to go on sinning so that grace may increase. I think that's the, the, the way he relates. All right. Um, some people persist in saying this doctrine encourages sin. I think we've covered that in the main question, let us go on sinning that grace may abound. Um, how does Paul answer this? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. All right, by no means is NIV 84 language. Uh, there's other translations. Some of you may have read other translations. Do you, do you remember any other? Certainly not. Certainly not. I haven't heard that one before, um, but all right. May it never be is the, is the most kind of most. God forbid is an odd one because the word God isn't in the Greek, but, you know, God forbid. But if you look at all this, may it never be, or uh, I forget them all. Uh, God forbid, uh, you know, by no means. How would you characterize that answer? It's kind of a negative answer to the question. Don't do that. All right. Is he saying, eh, nah. So do you sense a certain amount of, uh, I'm sorry, Jim? Definite. definite. All right. Do you sense a certain amount of emotion here? Do you think it's appropriate? Yeah. May it never be. That's almost how I think Paul wants you to say it. May it never be. Why should we feel that way about sin? Like, absolutely not. Why, why should we have an emotional reaction to it like that? Because this grace was bought with such a price. Okay. Do you think God gets emotional about sin? You better believe he does. Talks about uh, the Holy Spirit being grieved. It is an, it's, it's emotional for God when, when his people sin. I'm, I'm getting that huge out of Ezekiel every, every day as I review it. It's like Ezekiel is written in part to describe why the exile happened but it's also to give us an explication of the heart of God about it and what he felt when his people went after idols. And uh, it's, it's hard to even put in words. It's like this is not a light thing. So I don't think we can, I don't think there's any vigor that we could put to may it never be that would equal how God feels about our sin, how much he hates it. So the whole point is we're saved up out of it. Why would we want to go on doing it? That's, that's Paul's answer here. It's like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So that's, I think, what we wanna, how we want to hear, may it never be. It's a passionate 
uh, sense. Absolutely not. No chance. All right. So um, what does Paul mean when he says we died to sin? When did we die to sin? What does that mean, we died to sin? Can I ask, does it mean to all, you know, to all kinds of sins, right? Because we have sins of omission, we have sins of commission. I, I kind of get, I can kind of get the commission things, you know, the offensive things that I volitionally do. What about some of maybe the less volitional things? Uh, all of it, um, but I think it's bigger than that. I think it's like, this is like sin with a capital S, I look on this almost like a, an overarching realm or region or nation or state that sin is. And you get this in Romans 3 where he says, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. He's not speaking about specific sins there, but they're under sin, like a domain, like a realm, like a, a spiritual region. They, they live in the land of sin. They're under the domination of the tyrant sin. It's personified in that sense. And I think you get that uh, just as sin reigned, in gra uh, sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness, Romans 5.21. So sin was a kingdom, almost. I think it's really helpful to see it as a dominion or a kingdom. Yeah? You get that in the last verse, verse 14, it says, you know, sin is not your master. Can you read verse 14 for us? For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay. And, and anybody else, if you got the Bible there, 521, uh, read 520. I know, I know you just heard it, and I know it's right in the middle of a, a verse, but I just want to read it one more time. I just quoted it a second ago, but just read it. 521. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. So that pictures, it personifies sin. Because it, 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 puts, it puts sin as the, as, the, as the active agent of a verb, reign, right? Sin reigned in death. So like a king, like king sin reigned in death. King sin, as we talked about last time, is a tyrant. You were in king sin's kingdom. And it says in Colossians, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us over into the kingdom of the beloved son. So you are rescued out of a dark kingdom, and we could call it sin, like the, like the, the banner over, if you were entered, the domain. It's, it's, you, you were in this dominion called sin. You were a citizen or a subject of that dark domain. Does that make sense? And you are under its, its laws. You are under its dominion. All right? And then you died to sin. All right? So a lot of different images here. You've been rescued out of that domain, but you also died to it. So what does that mean about, uh, let's say, sin's authority as a tyrant, as a king over the individuals that have died to sin? You don't live in that country, you don't live in that country anymore. That tyrant has no power over you, has no right to command you. You're out of it. You're out of that country. Imagine like Cold War and a citizen of the Soviet Union escaping from, from the Soviet Union, uh, maybe a part of a gymnastics team or something like that, and managed to 
crawl across some darkened field and, and get to Austria or something like that and present uh, him or herself to uh, embassy for asylum. And let's say it's granted and then the process comes and, and at some point then they become a citizen, let's say, of the United States. Okay? What then uh, would we say is their official relationship to the Soviet Union at that point? They have none because they are now a citizen of the United States. So suppose the Kremlin, back in the Cold War, issued a summons to show up for military duty. And this individual is now a citizen of the U.S. living in New York City. And they get the summons from the Kremlin to go show up for military duty. What, what authority does that piece of paper have? None. No authority, no right to command whatsoever. Now let me ask you a question. Suppose that individual, just for old time's sake, went back to the old gulag just like for a two-week vacation and then just got treated like they always got treated in the gulag, you know, beaten up or something like that, et cetera. What would you call that person? Crazy, dumb, whatever. That's a Christian sinning. How dumb is it, Mark? <laughs> would you say that some Christian sinning is dumb, but the other Christian sinning is okay? Or the all of it's dumb, all right? That's us forgetting we have been set free from sin and acting like we still have to yield to that authority, that temptation, etc. So how many of those summons should you yield to or submit to? Zero. Zero. How many do you submit to every day? You don't want to know. And do you see the kindness and goodness and covering grace of God when we act like idiots? We act like idiots. When we act like fools because there's an essential irrationality to it. And it doesn't really matter, like you said, whether it's a sin of commission or omission. You're still sinning. It's something you should do, you know that's what you should do, mm -hmm. or something you shouldn't do, and you're doing it anyway. Exactly. So here's the thing. The concept here, and we're only at verse 3, but because of our union with Jesus and his subsequent then death, actual, literal, physical death on the cross, Paul's saying the spiritual implication for us are we, at that moment, died to the realm of sin forever. That's what happened. We died with, with Christ to sin forever. That's the significance. He said we died to sin, all right? How can we live in it any longer? So what do those words mean? Why does he say we died to sin? How, could, how can we live in it any longer? What attitude or demeanor would you say there is in that question? You get that sense, don't you? There's a sense of craziness here. That was in Colossians 3. Just the, the okay. quick of it is, yeah. verse 2, set your minds on things above, mm -hmm. not on earth and things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Amen. That's it, teaching the same thing. That spiritual union. But, but the, 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 the emotional tone of we died to sin, how can we live it any, any longer? It's a rhetorical question. There is no answer should be no answer. Well, let me explain how we can live it in longer. It's like there's no good answer. There's, there should be no response. There should be no response because it's essentially irrational, isn't it? I mean, to, to look at the holy God and his holy laws and all that and say, yeah, today I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to do my own thing. Tomorrow I'll go back to serving you. It's essentially insane. 
for a lot of reasons. One is we're forgetting who God is and how powerful he is and how holy he is. But secondly, how good his laws are. Jesus said his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His commands are not burdensome, John says in 1 John. They're not burdensome commands. But we act like they are. And so there's, a, that, there's a, an essential insanity here. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might literally walk in newness of life. So now we get into this topic of baptism. All right, what is, how do you understand the word baptize here? The word baptize means, it's just a transliteration of a Greek word, uh, baptizo, which means to immerse, to immerse or plunge in, in a, usually you think of a, a liquid like a vat or an ocean or a harbor or something like that. Uh, that's what baptize means, to immerse. But Paul uses it to talk about a spiritual union here. All of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. How do we understand that? Okay. Uh, do you think he's talking about water baptism here? You think no? She says yes. Okay, go ahead. Debate. All right. Why do you say yes? Why do you say? All right. Why do you, Why do you think yes? We're talking about water baptism. It's a symbol of dying to, your, to yourself and rising with Christ. Okay. All right. I accept that. I don't. I don't have a tremendous problem with it, um, but. I think it tends toward baptismal regeneration, if we're not careful. Go ahead. I would just say yes and yes, that Paul speaks of the reality and the symbol because one calls attention to the other. And, okay. and, the, and the debate the other side of it is, if you say uh, Jesus and something, then then you don't understand Jesus. And and you're, you're already, if you've been dead to your sin, if you're dead uh, in Christ and, and raised with Jesus to a new life, baptism is something you do as a result of that, not something you do to have that experience. So it's, it's, it's like almost both, but it's not, because it can't be Jesus and anything. Yeah, all right, so here's, here's what I would say. I can, let's, let's bring in, some, and since I, I did the handout, I got to put what cross-references I wanted. <laughs> so uh, someone read Matthew 3.11 and someone else 1 Corinthians 12.13. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Yeah. Let's just, let's just talk about that. All right. Let's wait on 1 Corinthians 12. This is John the Baptist. Um, basically, Mark, also Matthew 3, Mark 1. John is arguing for the superiority of the one who's coming after him, the thongs of whose sandals he is not worthy to untie. Why is he superior? He gives a number of reasons. He who comes after me was before me because he was, he uh, surpassed me because he was before me. The different things he says. But one of the key evidences of the superiority of Christ is the superiority of his baptism, of his baptism. I just do water, John says. Do you sense that? Look at this, 311. I just baptize with water. For repentance. But the one who comes after me, he's got a much higher level baptism that he does. He will baptize you, it's a crowd, a mixed crowd. He will baptize you with, what does it say? 
Holy Spirit and fire. Okay. Now it's you have to keep going to understand the the fire part is pretty clear once you hear John talk about the fire. His winnowing fork, Jesus's winnowing fork, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So if John's being consistent on fire, then fire represents what? Judgment, wrath. And if baptize means immerse, plunge, etc., how does Jesus plunge people into fire? Well, listen to these words. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what the text in uh, Revelation calls the lake of fire. It's a plunging in fire. Who does that? The judge of all the earth. Who's that? Jesus. Jesus has the right to immerse people or plunge people in fire, being consistent with how John uses the word fire in that passage. Jesus is greater than I am because he has the power to plunge people in eternal hell. But that's not the first thing he says. He will baptize you, the crowd, the Jews, the Jewish nation, in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, they talk about this all the time in the book of Acts. All right? Jesus baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. Again, the word baptize means to plunge or immerse. How does he do that? How does Jesus immerse people in the Holy Spirit? By indwelling, okay? And what is that work whereby Jesus immerses or baptizes people in the Holy Spirit? When does that happen? At salvation. At the moment of justification, moment of regeneration, at that instant. It's not a second work like the Pentecostals teach. I think that's harmful, actually. I think it's wrong for Martin Lloyd-Jones to call the second works and multiple works baptism. I don't think it's helpful, all right? I think there is a once-for-all baptism, and it's spiritual. It's a spiritual immersion. And by that spiritual immersion, you become a Christian. By that spiritual immersion, you're immersed in God, in Christ. Jesus does that. And notice, Jesus didn't do any water baptisms. He did none. Why didn't he do water baptisms? His disciples did water baptisms, and it's part of the Great Commission. We do water baptisms. But Jesus didn't do any. Why? It's, I think, for the same reason he didn't get married. It's a confusing image. It's not like it would have been ungodly. It's just we all know who the bride of Christ is. It's the church. Imagine if you were Jesus' bride in life. I mean, who is she? What is she? What role? It's confusing. I think in a similar way, although we, we, we would immediately sign off that that's confusing. But... I think it's almost the same thing if Jesus did water baptism. That's not the baptism he does. The baptism he does is spirit baptism. He baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. And he does that by saving them, saving their souls. Yeah. I have a detailed question. At the very beginning, why does he say that he will baptize with water, that he baptizes with water for repentance? Well, I think it's just a part of the process. The Jews were coming to him, confessing their sins. Confessing their sins, he was baptizing them. So it was a pledge that they wanted to live a different life. That the, the cleansing, the water, represented a commitment for that Jewish person. From that point on, they wanted to live a different kind of life. 
I wanted to stop, you know, sinning. And so uh, I think it's on, on the basis of their repentance, he baptizes them. So they would confess their sins to him, and he said, all right, on the basis of that confession, I'm going to baptize you as a pledge to a, a new life. And frankly, that's what Christian baptism is too. We basically think, as Mark was saying, we, we as Baptists believe that we are coming after the fact. The real baptism has already happened, or we're not going to baptize them, right? We don't baptize anyone in water that we don't think has already been baptized in the Spirit. And how are they baptized in the Spirit? By repenting and believing the gospel. How do we know that? Tell me your story. Give me your testimony. What evidence is there that the Holy Spirit's in your life? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? We, you know, that's the evidence. Then the water comes as an outward and visible sign of the baptism that's already occurred. All right? That's how I look at water baptism. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are... We were all given the one spirit to drink. All right, so the first half of that verse, we were all, we all, all us Christians, were baptized by one spirit into one body. So here's this body image. So what does that mean? The one, one body. What is that body? What do we call that? The church, the body of Christ. So how did you become a member of the body of Christ? You were baptized by the spirit into it. When did that happen? Well, when did you become a member of the body of Christ? At the moment of conversion. It's not like you had to wait. At the moment you're converted, you're instantly a member of the body of Christ. But the verse here ascribes it to the baptism of the Spirit. You're baptized by the Spirit into that one body. Okay? So now go back to Romans, and I would suggest you look at it from that light. The water baptism is an out-visible sign, I understand that, but the real baptism is that which made you one with Jesus in his death and in his life. Does that make sense? That's the real baptism. That's the, the one that, work, that actually works. It's effective. So don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So again, that's immersed language. What does that mean? We were immersed by the Spirit into the death of Christ. Maybe you didn't know that, Paul's saying. Don't you know that? That when you were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, you were baptized into Jesus' death. What does that mean? It's kind of the very thing we've been saying a lot tonight, but let's talk about it. You were baptized into his death. Yeah. Yeah. We died. We died to sin, um, and we know. And 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 the death. We need to understand. Death is a serious thing, a somber thing, a a, a cause for grief and anguish. There's the death penalty for sin was established by God in the Garden of Eden. How much trouble has that caused? It's a terrible, terrible thing. But Paul turns it around here. Says it's also a decisive, final thing. And when you died, that old realm no longer has any power over you. That's the whole thing. You know, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, there's nothing more they can do to you, right? <laughs> it's like once they're dead it's, dead, it's like, you know, it's a corpse, it's dead, it has no power over it. 
It's a decisive end to the earlier life. That's what he's saying. So you were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. So that buried language uh, ties to the death, but also the immersion, the plunging. The, that's what baptizo means. You went down. You went down with Jesus into the grave. I think that's the idea. It's not so much as Baptists like to say. It's like what we do when we plunge you under the water and then bring you up. I don't mind it that much, but I, I think. Anything that's looking too much at the mechanism of water baptism misses the incredibly important theological statements being made here. The plunging didn't happen in water. It happened by repentance and faith and the working of the Spirit in you. Does that make sense? So you were, you were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what does that mean, in order that? What do those words mean, in order that? So God basically put you to death spiritually through your union with Christ for a, a purpose. And what is that purpose? Why did he kill you spiritually, in Jesus. He had a reason for doing that. In order that what? I'm sorry. So we could live with him. Or as Paul says here, walk in newness of life. I know NIV just says live a new life, but I like walk. Walk in newness of life. What does that mean, walk in newness of life? That's sanct the sanctification life. Yeah, go ahead, TJ. It just kind of says the same thing. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. It's so beautiful. And the walking image is one of, of very practical, moment-by-moment, day-by-day following of Jesus. It's really rubber meets the road. It's detailed. It's also big picture in terms of that journey, that internal journey of holiness that we've talked about so much. We're walking in newness of life. It's a new life, okay? Now, here's the thing. If you're not walking in newness of life, then just sticking to the language we've used so far in verses 1 through 4, what could we say is true of a person who's not walking in newness of life? I'm saying there, there should be fruit in that person's life. But if there's not, they are not walking in newness of life. It's connected to what happened before that. They didn't die with Christ. They're not united with Christ. What would we call such a person who's not united with Christ, didn't die with Christ, is therefore not walking in newness of life? Not saved. They're not, not a Christian. They're not born again. So walking in newness of life is essential to the whole salvation work God is doing. Right? How does that relate to the original question, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? How does that connect to walk in newness of life? How do you relate those two? It's beautiful. Yeah. Used to, and actually doing the things that we used to in our old sinful nature, yeah. uh, now we 
conviction and guilt that sort of kills us spiritually. It's awesome. So beautiful. I love that word new, and it's such a big word in Revelation. Uh, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Boy, that word new is big in Revelation 21, isn't it? New, new, new. But, but 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we're new now. Our inner nature. Not our bodies, though. Paul's going to be pretty denigrating about the body we're housed in here. He calls it a body of sin, body of death, mortal body, all this. Uh, we'll get to all that. Your body's part of your problem. All right, it is your vehicle for serving, but you've got to master it. You've got to present the members. It's got certain drives to it. There's a pattern of, of law of sin and death in your members. Romans 7, it's, you know what I'm talking about. That's the battle in sanctification. We'll get to all that. But we ourselves have been united with Christ in his death. We are now able, walking in newness of life. That's the new life. And that, that is not a life of sin. It's actually sinless. It's a perfect life. It's not a so-so life. It's not like 50-50 or whatever. It's a pure, perfect life. That's what we're called. Holy Spirit's not calling you to do better today. Holy Spirit is calling you to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Does that sound like something the Spirit would say? Yes, because that's what He's saying. He's not saying, hey, I just want you, to, I want you to up your game a little bit today. That is not the language of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you see sin in your life, Put it to death. Wherever you see an opportunity to do good works, do them. Not some of them. That's what he's getting at. So he's, like 1 Corinthians says, aim for perfection. Or 2 Corinthians. Beautiful. So that's, that's what we're talking about here. We got four verses done. That's incredible. We're just slowing down like they always do in Romans. It's just what Romans does. But I don't mind. I mean, these are some of the most practical, helpful. I'm telling you, you, you I, I guarantee, because it was true of me as well, and still true of me to some degree, we underestimate this positional language of considering ourselves dead to sin. We underestimate how powerful it is to say to a temptation, I'm dead to that. I don't need to do that ever again. It's a powerful idea. Very, very powerful. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.